we continue with the chapter called Practicing Dharma. And uh, this is from the, uh, the book Being Dharma, Teachings of Zumpo Cha. And this particular talk has been uh, The Path to Peace. As you continue the practice, fresh attachments and new kinds of delusion begin to arise in the mind. This means you start clinging to that which is good or wholesome. You become fearful of any blemishes or faults in the mind, anxious that your samadhi will be harmed by them. At the same time, you begin to be diligent and hard-working and to love and nurture the practice. Whenever the mind makes contact with phenomena, you become fearful and tense. You become aware of other people's faults as well, down to the slightest things that they seem to be doing wrong. This is because you're concerned for your practice. This is practicing on one level, based on having established your views in accord with the essential foundations of practice taught by the Buddha. You continue to practice like this as much as possible. You might even reach a point where you're constantly judging and finding fault with everyone you meet. You're constantly uh, reacting with attraction and aversion to the world around you, becoming full of all kinds of uncertainty and continually attaching to views about how to practice. It's as if you've become obsessed with the practice. But don't worry about this yet. At this point, it's better to practice too much and too little. Practice a lot and dedicate yourself to looking after body, speech and mind. You can never really do too much of this. Once you have a foundation, there'll be a strong sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing established in the heart. Whatever the time or place, in public or in private, you'll not want to do anything that's harmful to yourself or others. The practice of mindfulness and restraint with body, speech and mind and the consistent distinguishing between right and wrong is what, you've ho- is what you hold as the focus. You become concentrated in this way, and by unshakably sticking to this way of practice, the mind actually becomes sila, samadhi, and wisdom. This is a very uh, helpful point that uh, Lumpo Cha is making, uh, that as the practice develops, then attachment doesn't just um, say devolve to uh, following you know, greed, hatred, uh, and uh, delusion, such like, or, or um, the kind of more a coarse uh, uh, sense objects of desire and aversion, but attachment to goodness, attachment to the practice, attachment to to being a meditator, and attachment to what's right and wrong can become a very, uh, say, continual presence. And so that um, uh, this is uh, very good to be aware of. So it's like a, a wrong grasping of goodness and. And many, many of Lumpuchar's teachings, he uh, he talks about this, and uh, and uh, certainly um, the messages, and also many of the examples he gives is uh, are coming from his own experience of, of having uh, acted in this way, having had this kind of attitude of trying to hang on to goodness, and then finding finding himself being critical of all the people around him, and uh, as one. Um, uh, um, one particular Dhamma talk of his, I forget uh, where it's found, but he said, uh, "Yeah, I was so um, so uh, judgmental of all the other monks in the monastery. 
Yeah, I felt I could sit longer than than all of them. I was better at concentration. I could chant better than them. I was more committed in the practice. I was stricter in the vinaya, and I was. <laughs> it was true, but my mind was making such a a big problem out of that that even though those wholesome qualities were there, because of the way the mind was taking hold of them and finding fault with with others, uh, creating negative judgmental feelings towards others, then that very goodness became something that was, a, 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 or the attachment to that goodness was becoming an obstruction. And he'd give the example of, of how to pick up a snake. He'd say, if you're grasping suffering, if you, if you grasp but uh, things that are unskillful uh, uh, straight away, like it's like taking hold of the head of the snake, it bites you immediately and it's, it's painful straight away. So grasping happiness or grasping goodness is like taking hold of the tail of the snake. If the teeth aren't there, but if you take hold of the tail of the snake, very soon it whips around and it'll bite you. And so he was uh, take uh, use that often as an example of uh, the unskillful grasping of, of of goodness and wholesomeness and, and happiness. The uh, the correct way, or the the most skillful way to catch a snake, is to go to aim your attention at the head end, <laughs> but to take a, a forked stick. And then, mindfully approaching the, the snake, then you carefully plant the the stick over the the snake's neck, and then you bring your hand up from behind the stick and take hold of the, the snake uh, just behind its head. So you've got hold of the snake, but its teeth are close to your hand, but uh, uh, away from your hand, so it can't possibly bite you. And then you should have a ideally you've got a sack nearby, and you can just drop the the snake into the sack and then carry it to the uh, suitably remote place and then let it go that's the uh, a skillful way of, of dealing with suffering uh, is to yeah, and w- one of the reasons why we contemplate dukkha is like going to the dukkha end of our life the, the end of the snake and then carefully approaching dukkha with a, a, a careful and uh, uh, say informed approach and then it can be picked up and then the, uh, the situation the, those feelings can be let go of so then, uh, um, uh, as he says, if he, uh, if you get very very focused on the practice and very uh, involved, then it can bring a, uh, a lot of criticism for your own conduct and the conduct of other people, and the mind notices all of the uh, the, the sort of wrongdoings, uh, internal and external, and so that it, it can uh, it can seem to be quite stressful or burdensome and, and or, or uh, say agitating. But as he said, it's better to to do this than not not to better to practice too much than too little. And the um, the the thing that is the the distorting factor in that is, I would say, the habit of self views practicing on, uh, say, motivated by self view practicing on your own terms, and that. As long as it's me practicing, me working with my mind, me trying to get rid of my defilements, me comparing myself to you, as long as there's a, a strong sense of me, uh, my and I, then it's going to lead towards a sort of um, stressful and uh, and uh, sort of critical qualities, uh, both criticizing your own mind states and actions and words and criticizing those of others. But um, the uh, the more that the... the the driving force for Dhamma practice is free of conceit, free of self-view, and it's guided by mindfulness and wisdom, then um, things balance out. And so then 
that, as he says in this last part here about Hiriotaba, a strong sense of shame and a fear of wrongdoing are established in the heart. So uh, a, f- uh, a few readings ago, I was talking about this, how a sense of uh, moral, uh, morality, uh, moral sensitivity, a sense of you know, wise fear of, of uh, consequences Hiri and Otapa, these are taken as the guardians of the world. They're the, the protectors of the heart. So they, they work by being painful. They're uncomfortable mental states, but that, that's how they do their job. And so the more that the practice develops in a skillful way and, and the habits of, of self-creation are let go of, then Hiri Otapa stays there. The Hiri Otapa is established and gets stronger, but it's not tied up with... Um, with uh, self-view, so that there's a recognition. Oh, that was uh, if something is said that was unskillful or not, not quite true. Then there's a recognition of oh, that wasn't that quite accurate, or that wasn't that wasn't very kind. Rather than oh, I'm a terrible person, I uh, I'm so aggressive or I'm dishonest, and and creating a, a self out of it. So that uh, th- those are two separate aspects. It's good to understand that Hiriotapa it will sustain itself and is is a useful quality along the way and um but the uh, the kind of fault finding and judgmentalism uh, that uh, that's uh, say a an, a painful extra that the mind creates and that that falls away the more and more that the the practice is developed in a skillful fashion so any questions thoughts reflections Yes. I liked I liked all of it. Um, I was going to say sometimes I get too wrapped up in uh, another person uh, who is in authority. Maybe their their own internal um, criticisms and ruminations. So I was kind of relating that to. Um, Can you speak up a little bit? Um, his. Oh, sorry, I'll start again. Um, so I was relating that to um, how I sometimes get um, overwhelmed by uh, other person's criticisms um, and, rum- and ruminations, especially if I if they're in a position of authority or if they're a bit older. Um, so I was wondering if there was any reflections on how to have a healthy. Separation and not take on those criticisms as my own. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, the uh, with any kind of, of criticism or, or sort of feedback direction coming from outside, whether it's to you particularly or, or you as sort of part of a of a group, then it's good to to listen to that and to sort of take it in and say, okay, well. Uh, uh, is there uh, any aspect of this that does make sense, or that I can say, yeah, that's actually that's a that's a fair point, um, and to uh, uh, to in a way discern the the element of I don't like to be criticised, leave me alone, don't bully me, ah, that kind of we can feel on an energetic level, and sort of tease that apart from well. Actually, this is quite good, good advice, <laughs> and maybe that's the way that that person expresses themselves, or, or that's uh, 
just uh, the 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 uh, the way my mind is relating to being in that particular role in the workplace or in the family life or, or whatever in the monastery and so that uh, that uh, sen- that sense of receptivity and openness to what's being said you don't have to um, believe all of it but just just to be measuring it up against your own experience and say well yeah that's uh, it's a bit embarrassing but actually they've got a good, fair point <laughs> um, so to then take that in and also to uh, essentially not take it personally and it can be hard because particularly if you there's some some emotion uh, being expressed and one can feel a bit intimidated or anxious and or irritated uh, so it's helpful just to be aware of those emotional rea- reactions and the way that we're handling that exchange and then to uh, say within that okay well um, this uh, is this person well intentioned uh, is what is what they're saying meaningful is it does it actually apply and then uh, then you know taking those things to to heart and say okay well actually that that's a fair point so uh, maybe I can do those things differently or if it's like well, I don't know what they're getting at what's I, I don't what they're they're talking about I just don't see it that way and then uh, again if you're not taking it personally then uh, if um, you're getting some kind of message or guidance or instruction or feedback to say um, well I don't mean to be impolite but I just don't understand what you're talking about <laughs> well, I can't it just doesn't seem to be the, the way that you're describing or uh, I'm not sure what you're asking here and so cause can you clarify and then what you find is the less personally you're taking it the more straightforward you can be in terms of how you express yourself and you say and to to say that I'm, I'm not trying to be rude but I can't understand what you're saying <laughs> and that uh, can you can can you t- to go into that a bit more uh, from a different angle or, or talk about it a bit more so I can get the point of what's what's the issue here and then you can have a, a quite a straightforward conversation uh, uh, if you're in an intimidated or defensive or an aggressive place then that that makes the communication really break down because then the other person feels like this person's just uh, being obnoxious or difficult or is not paying attention or not listening not trying to not trying to be um supportive so but the the more you can let go of those sort of self-centered habits and communicate in a straightforward way then um that the uh, the the more effective the communication will be. Mm-hmm. There's a when um, uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho talks about when he was a, a young monk with with Lumpur Cha, how uh, when th- he'd been at Wat Bapong Ajahn Cha's monastery for a few years, and there was a few things about the way Ajahn, the way Ajahn Cha operated that was quite annoying. And so, being a, an American, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> He decided that he would tell the Ajahn what was wrong with him and how things should be done differently. Um, in the, the Thai culture, that they would avoid confrontational, a confrontational mode. But that was Ajahn Sumedho was American, so it just sort of, oh, I'll just take a moment and, and uh, let Lumpur know what what uh, things are upsetting. So he went to to Lumpur Cha with his his list. He didn't. Um, I'm not sure exactly uh, uh, what what was in the list but it was probably things like chewing betel nut 
uh, or talking a lot, you know, when he's encouraging everyone to be restrained and go back to their kutis and practice, and he was sitting there talking to people, you know, all day long, every day. And uh, anyway, I, I, I don't want to project too much. <laughs> but anyhow, so Lumpur Cha listened to all of these criticisms from the young uh, Bhikkhu Sumato, and uh, he <clears throat> and so he said, well, thank you very much, Sumato, for letting me know all of these, these concerns that you have. Um, uh, I certainly uh, uh, hear what you say with respect to these things, uh, but it's also helpful for you to, con to consider perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not perfect, otherwise you'd be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. So it was also <laughs> a kind of re a reflection as well, like, yeah, the the shortcomings. I, I uh, there uh, uh, things that that are there that might be irritating or upsetting or might be be able to be done better. But the key thing is, where are you looking for for rightness or goodness or perfection? And that uh, expecting the the uh, the teacher to be absolutely flawless at all times uh, to meet your own personal. Um, so expectations or wishes and such like. It's not uh, it's not easy to do. Um, one of the things that's that's quite helpful in those kind of situations, if you're being given some feedback or you're on the being uh, someone's giving you some uh, some guidance or some saying some things that you're finding hard to deal with, to use a. Uh, Body awareness. Just bring the attention into your body. Notice how you're, if you're sort of sitting in a in a in a tense state. Your shoulders are up by your ears, and okay, <laughs> I'm kind of tense and defensive here. And just to notice that and let the body relax. And so then, the um, the the whole message of your own body, you know, uh, and uh, the way the body's being held is much more conducive to that sense of openness, receptivity, and and ease, rather than sort of defensiveness and self-protection and fear and so on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so to continue. As you continue to develop your practice, these different qualities are perfected together. However, practicing at this level is still not enough to produce the factors of jhana, or meditative absorption. The practice is still too coarse. However, the mind is already quite refined, on the refined side of course. Uh, for an ordinary unenlightened person who hasn't been looking after the mind or practicing meditation and mindfulness, just this much is already something quite refined. It's like a poor person to whom having a few hundred dollars can mean a lot, though for a millionaire it's almost nothing. A few hundred can be a lot when you're hard up. In the same way, even though in the early stages of practice you might only be able to let go of the coarser mental afflictions, this can still seem quite profound if you're unenlightened and have never practiced and let go before. At this level, you can feel some satisfaction at being able to, to practice to the full extent of your ability. If this is the case, it means that you have entered the correct path. You're travelling along the very first stage which is something quite difficult to sustain. As you deepen and refine it, sila, samadhi and wisdom will mature together from the same place, from the same raw material. It's like the coconut palms. 
They absorb water from the earth and pull it up through their trunks. By the time the water reaches the coconut itself, it's become clean and sweet. And even though it's derived from that plain water in the ground, the palm is nourished by what are essentially the coarse earth and water elements which it absorbs and purifies, and these are transformed into something far sweeter and purer than before. In the same way, the practice has coarse beginnings, but by refining the mind through meditation and reflection, it becomes increasingly subtle. So this is another of a, a, example of Lumpur Chai using his, uh, his, his own uh, life experience in northeast Thailand and looking after coconut trees and how, and how they work. Uh, and uh, he would very, very regularly draw upon the, the kind of natural surroundings and the everyday life of the people that he was talking to um, uh, to use as examples. He, he'd never lived in the West. Uh, he'd only visited a couple of times, so almost all of his examples are from the sort of Northeast Thai uh, rural life. As the mind becomes more refined, mindfulness becomes more focused. The practice actually becomes easier as the mind turns more and more inward to focus on itself. You no longer make big mistakes or deviate wildly. When doubts occur in different situations, such as whether acting or speaking in certain ways are right or wrong, you simply halt the proliferation of mental activity and through intensifying your effort, turn your attention deeper inside. Samadhi becomes progressively firmer and wisdom is enhanced so you can see things more clearly and with increasing ease. The end result is that you can see clearly the mind and its objects without having to make any distinction between mind body and speech. You can see that the body depends on the mind in order to function. However, the mind itself is constantly subject to different objects contacting and conditioning it. As you continue to turn inward and wisdom matures, eventually you're left contemplating the mind and its objects, which means you start to experience the body as something immaterial. The body's physicality is experienced as formless objects that come into contact with the mind. So this is talking about the deepening levels of, of uh, insight, wisdom, and then uh, the, um, uh, the the first two levels of uh, of liberation, stream entry, and then uh, the level of the once returner. The uh, uh, stream entry, the three qualities are, are let go of, which is first of all self view, sakaya ditti then um, vichikicha, um, skeptical doubt, and then the third one is silapata paramasa, attachment to conventions, uh, rites and, and rituals, uh, and, uh, and seeing inherent value in those. Then the next level, uh, the sakadagami, or the once-returner uh, once level, which means that uh, one who's reached that level will only return to the, the, the human plane one more time uh, before uh, uh, the... Uh, process of, of uh, liberation is completed that uh, in that that level then uh, it said that uh, uh, desire raga and karma raga and aversion be a part of they're diminished but they don't disappear altogether so there's still uh, a degree of, of desire sense desire there's still a degree of, of ill will but it's greatly muted it's, it's much more um, say mild and um, uh, the, um, uh, the 
the kind of development of, uh, say, uh, the speed with which the mind can respond to liking and disliking, comfort and discomfort, uh, that gets quicker and is and is less encumbered, less uh, less cluttered, and so that um, and that that sense of right and wrong, wholesome and unwholesome, is much much closer to the surface as that quality of wisdom develops. Yeah. Uh, and he uses this uh, this phrase here: "You simply halt the proliferation of mental activity." Simply, <laughs> for many uh, for for many of us, just the uh, uh, say deciding uh, to stop the mind proliferating and thinking about uh, overthinking about things is more than just a decision is uh, is needed. That it can take quite a bit of work to for that to go quiet. But um, the, with the development of insight, then. It, that is that, that's how it takes shape for most people. You can think when you want to think and not think when you don't want to think, and and that it's that's far more, say, responsive to to a, a decision and intention. And then, as he goes on to say, the end result is you can see clearly the mind and its objects without having to make any distinction between mind, body, and speech. So that uh, as uh, the quality of wisdom uh, develops, then there's a sense of the mind knowing its objects and then as he says eventually uh, the uh, the you experience the body as something immaterial so we think well the body is it's uh, it's it's solid like this this chair it, it's here it, it's it's a material thing but our experience of the body is immaterial if you like the sense of touch this is that's a mental event the feeling of touch there's sense receptors in my fingers that are when they're, they're, they're meeting the wood or my leg, then they're saying. So, then it sends a message to the brain: pressure has been experienced equals solid object is there. But that's a mental event, just like vision. Uh, I can say we are here in the in the the sala, the, temp- the temporary sala here at Amravati, but this is all. This is actually for each of us is a mental event. Our mind puts together sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and says, here we are, <laughs> here we are at the Dhamma reading. So I'm not saying it's all just a, a dream or it's all just invented by the mind, but uh, what he's pointing to is that our experience, this recognizing that the flow of experience is a flow of perceptions. It's a, it's a set of mental events. And the... Um, the experience of the of the physical body and the material world, those are sense perceptions that come into being, take shape, and and dissolve, and uh, and so that that um, it's like a shift of view to recognize there's the the mind that's aware and there's the field of experience coming and going and changing in a, a continual way, and there's a greater sense of the. Uh, the sort of fabricated, conditioned, and dependent nature of perception. Like, uh, sometimes, uh, say, I'm sitting here at breakfast time, and maybe the, um, the there's nobody sitting on this carpet. So, uh, and it's, it was the same with the carpet in the other sala. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, I, if I relax my vision in a certain way, then the carpet starts to undulate like the f- surface of the sea, and then I can kind of blink or just change my vision, and the carpet stops undulating. It's not really turning into a kind of a flowing presence, but if you let the vision relax, then that's what uh, that's the the form it takes. So the mind is is um, 
say taking those uh, say the the the, the uh, light coming into the eye and the, the sensory stimulation from that and it's saying oh this looks a bit like the surface of a lake or a sea okay let's let I guess we need some waves here that's what <laughs> that's what this is and then and then you can blink and say no it's not waves so I don't know if others have had this experience or that you can so. Uh, see things working in that way, but uh, sometimes if it's a, a quiet morning, I just let my let myself be reminded that yeah, this is vision is dependent, it's conditioned, it's not uh, absolutely uh, a fixed and reliable quality, and so that the that recollection of or realization that our experience, uh, what what uh, what we each of us experience moment by moment. It's not the world, and, and many of you heard me say this over and over again, we don't, none of us experience the world. Each of us experiences our mind's version of the world. So that uh, if you sort of adjust your vision and then the carpet starts undulating, <laughs> that's the, that version of the world. You, you blink and it stops doing that. Uh, then uh, that it, that's the, the, the mind's creation. And we can so easily forget that because we think we are experiencing the world with the sky and the trees and the ground and the people and, and uh, the mind creates a, a system of fixed realities which is very instinctual and a very powerful conditioning. But with the development of insight there's that recognition of, of uh, this is not the world, this is my mind's version of the world. And one of the most useful or significant um, effects of that is then, in terms of getting along with people, <laughs> is that, well, of course, the way that my mind take, make, makes uh, its version of the world can't possibly be exactly the same as everybody else's. It can't, it can't be. Statistically, that's impossible. It can't, it can't work that way. So we're all going to have slightly different versions of the world. If our minds version is really different then then we, we get labeled as crazy or having a psychotic episode or or um, we're you know, seriously deluded but um, and so most of our versions sort of map each other reasonably well <laughs> but uh, the more that we can recollect that this is what I'm experiencing is my mind's version of the world then when somebody else's version is a bit different uh, then rather than thinking, oh, he's wrong, or how can she think that way, or that's you know, that, that's that's really awful, that's ugly. How can they, how could they choose that? Uh, the instead of those judgments uh, uh, based on the idea that I'm experiencing the world and I call this beautiful, this ugly, this uh, this right, that wrong, then there's the appreciation of other people's perspectives. That of course they see it differently, so it, it's a, a great support for compassion and uh, empathy for others. That uh, you find uh, that you you let go of that conceit that everyone should see the world the same way that you do, and if they don't, then they're wrong or they're <laughs> or they're foolish. Yeah. But rather, oh well, I see it this way because of this particular point of view. But why should other people see it the same way? Ah, so that means we able to find a lot more space for each other. We're, allowed, we're able to, to harmonize with each other much more effectively. So it's not just a kind of, um, uh, in a way, like a mind game of remembering, oh yeah, this is just uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, all put together to make this. But it has very powerful and significant social implications and 
in terms of the way we relate with each other, we relate with the, the world around us. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Ajahn, uh, something you said earlier, I'm wondering if um, when one gets to a level of practice where it's possible to um, control what thoughts come or don't come, um, and maybe even control the senses and blocking certain sense, sense um, contact or perception, um, is a danger of that, that self uh, a sense of self that is controlling those things could well, when you say blocking sense perceptions, I mean, there's in terms of behavior, like choosing to say things, some things, and not say other things, or to to taste certain things and not taste other things. But what, what do you mean by controlling sense perceptions? I think, um, maybe something I've, I've heard in uh, some teachings is that uh, I'm certain it, on the path that at some point um, it's possible to. Um, control uh, sense contact, or control um, when, when, um, or, or block certain senses, or um, in, in some way. Um, I'm not so familiar with that. Yeah. Maybe some of the higher jhanas they talk about, say the body, the sense of the body disappearing. Yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, in states of extreme concentration. Um, but in ordinary everyday activity, this to decide that you you won't hear a particular sound or you won't taste a particular flavour, uh, then um, that uh, that that might be possible. But uh, I I uh, I've not heard of anyone being able to do that. I mean, Ajahn Chah once, uh, um, as a as a kind of just as a bit of a, an aside. When a monk came to to wanted to stay at Wat Bapong and was um, uh, was claiming that uh, that it was okay for him to keep money because he wasn't attached to it, uh, then uh, and, and what <coughs> the the sangha at Wat Bapong uh, uh, is a very strict. No one no one owns any money and no one has any control over money <coughs> in the in the um, the monks, in the monks community. And so he was wanting to come and stay there, and, and then he was explained, well, you, if you if you come, then you have to give up whatever money you have. And he was trying to make a case for the fact that he wasn't attached to it, that he did use money, it was just for his own temple, and he was been a monk for a long time. And Ajahn Shah said, okay, if I put a kilogram of salt here, and you eat the whole bag of salt, and you can tell me that it doesn't taste salty, then I'll... Uh, then maybe I'll believe you. But actually, if you do it with a kilogram, and you say you still can't taste the salt. I'll give you a hundred kilograms. <laughs> so that the, the idea that you could use money and not be attached to it was—he uh, was making that point. But, uh, you know, you—if it—if it's salt, it's going to taste salty. So that. Um, so I haven't. I'm not sure where where that would come from. I think, as Tan. Um, uh, Jitta Sangwaro was saying that uh, in the sort of states of, of very, very deep absorption, then the mind can dissociate from the sense field altogether. And, the, and there's a point where the, in the beginning of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha's last days, he, uh, he says, he makes the comment that uh, he's, he's very old and has a lot of physical discomfort. He said, the only way I can feel any kind of, of relief 
physical comfort is to completely absorb his mind into the sunyata, into emptiness. And if he's so, the implication being, if he's engaged with ordinary sensory activity and communication, he's feeling pain all the time. So that he could sort of put his mind into a state where the, it dissociated from the sense world, but that's a, like a particularly sort of intense kind of concentration. I think the, the, the heart of the question was not about that, but just the sense of um, whether that, whether dissociating um, uh, from sense field in the state of jhana, or as you said before, um, controlling the thoughts, or, or, or um, that sense of, is, is a danger there. There's uh, a sense that there's a, a self controlling those things that's able to sort of decide, or things that are dhammas that are um, have all these conditions that are arising and passing but when somehow the arising or the passing is more um, decided or controlled you know that you know that sense of self I think well I think it, it, the it's uh, really I think the point as far as I as far as I read it is around uh, the proliferative tendency of the thinking mind and so it's not a, ma- not a matter of not using thought or f- suppressing all thought from arising. But when a thought arises and then you, you, you want to think something through, then you can think, uh, think about it. But if you want to, uh, if there's no more need to think about that, you can just stop thinking and just be uh, aware without there be, being conceptual thought going through the mind. So that uh, there is a certain amount of volition and engagement there but that volition and engagement and decision making can be guided by mindfulness and wisdom and doesn't have to be a a sense of there could easily be a sense of self there but it doesn't have to be and so that um, that it's more to do with that capacity to uh, help the mind not just get lo- getting lost in endless streams of proliferation and story ma- the story making factory the writing room you know <laughs> Where the the mind just can't uh, just can't stop uh, chattering to, and commenting and, and such like, so that um, that uh, uh, I would say there isn't there isn't much danger in that. I mean, there's the, any kind of practice or any effort can be uh, guided in, in an unskillful way, but, uh, but I think if there's enough uh, wisdom there uh, and that the the um, the there's an attention on the attitude that's present, like just it's not just a matter of suppressing of or trying to just wipe out thought with uh, aversion and and uh, and willpower, which then would be like just the uh, vibhava tanna, the desire to get rid of. Then you know, the I would say that's an extremely beneficial skill to develop, <laughs> the, to be able to think when you want to think and not think when you don't want to think. Just, to, just like you can pick up a book and read it, or you can close the book and not read it. You know, it's like you, it's a matter of, of choice, and that, and and so um, uh, and uh, one of the points I like to make frequently, and I was was also just just saying now, is that uh, the effort and intention in in dhamma practice, the less that it's guided by self view, and the more that it's it's guided by mindfulness and wisdom, then the more that the the practice is really in accordance with with Dhamma, 
and it is really uh, really liberating So to continue, now examining the nature of the mind, you can observe that in its natural state it has no preoccupations. It's like a flag on the end of a pole or like a leaf on a tree. By itself it remains still. If it flutters, that's because of the wind, an external force. In its natural state, the mind is the same without attraction or aversion, without ascribing characteristics to things or finding fault with people. It's independent, existing in a state of purity that is clear, radiant and stainless. In its natural state, the mind is peaceful, without happiness or suffering. This is the true state of the mind. So the purpose of practice is to seek inwardly, investigating until you reach the original mind. Original mind is also known as pure mind. It's the mind without attachment. It isn't affected by mental objects and doesn't chase after pleasant and unpleasant phenomena. Rather, it is in a state of continuous wakefulness, thoroughly aware of all its experiences. When the mind is like this, it doesn't become anything and nothing can shake it. Why? Because there's awareness. The mind knows itself as pure. It's reached its original state of independence. This has come about through the faculty of mindfulness together with wise reflection. Seeing that all things are merely conditions arising out of the confluence of the elements without any individual controlling them. So this is a, a, um, a regular theme of Lumpur Char's teachings and also um, characteristic of the Thai forest tradition, uh, quite uh, quite a number of the different Ajans uh, talk in these same kind of terms, and that uh, that um, image of the leaf on the tree, if it, uh, if a wind comes along, and uh, uh, the uh, the wind uh, in other Dhamma talks, Lumpur Cha say that the wind is uh, attachment to moods. The mind following its moods is the the wind that makes the the leaf flutter. If the, if the mind attaches to its moods, then the, the leaf flutters, but if it doesn't attach to its moods, then the, the, the leaf is, is still. And then, as he says, it's independent, existing in a state of purity that's clear, radiant, and stainless. So one of the... Uh, there's a, a couple of short suttas in the, the Book of the Ones, in the numerical discourses, the uh, Sutta 51 and 52, which... Uh, uh, relate to the the um, what they call the pabasara jitta or the the inherently radiant nature of the mind, and so these are very frequently quoted by the forest ajans, and uh, uh, they uh, they're very very short the, these two suttas, and uh, they say when the um, uh, when the 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 mind is um, uh, the the mind's nature is radiant, and um, uh, defilement, uh, when defilements come along, then that radiance is is obscured, uh, or if, and, and then if defilements don't come along, or def defilements are not attached to, then its radiance 
shines forth so that the um, uh, that so intrinsic nature of mind is uh, and that uh, quality of pabasara means which means bright or radiant luminous um, so you find that in the teachings of, of uh, uh, Ajahn Man, uh, Ajahn Tate, Ajahn, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabua, and, and many others. Uh, so that that uh, is a, uh, it's a, it's a very short scriptural basis, but you very find you find them very often quoting those particular passages. Pabasaramidam bikawe akandukehi kilesehi. So the the word for a visitor, like a visiting monk, is a, an akanduka monk. So it's the defilements are like visitors. They just they they come and visit. They show up, uh, uh, um, and so that if the mind gives them a home, <laughs> then they they obscure that natural radiance. But if if they um, if they're not attached to, if they're not given a home, then uh, the mind's natural radiance is able to uh, be uh, fully realized. And in uh, the Thai language, also they this kind of. Um, uh, series of qualities, clear, radiant, and stainless. Um, it, it, it alliterates very neatly. Sawang, which means radiant. Saat, which means pure. Sangup, which means peaceful. So, sawang, saat, sangup is a frequent kind of phrase that you you hear in the Dhamma talks, talking about the when the mind is awake uh, to to Dhamma and free of defilements, then its nature is. Uh, uh, pure, radiant, and peaceful. And then, as he goes on to say, when the mind is like this, it doesn't become anything and nothing can shake it. Why? Because there's awareness. The mind knows itself as pure. So in that, in that state, then the mind doesn't need anything to, to make it complete or doesn't need to get rid of anything to... Uh, to purify itself, it, it's the, the, its natural clarity and purity is is uh, is manifest, is uh, actualized, and so that uh, as he says, it's reached its original state uh, of independence, and so also just the title of this book, being Dharma, being Dharma, uh, that um, it's I would say that in that uh, in that clarity, then the mind is also it's knowing its own nature as dharma, and that that it's a dharma aware of its own uh, quality. The dharma aware of its own nature is what is being, uh, say, uh, realized, actualized in that in that clarity. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. I think I have a question, but I wonder if you could find at the very beginning of the passage. You read a statement, and it had something to do with peacefulness, happiness, something. In its natural state, the mind is peaceful without happiness or suffering. So this, what it's... Happiness is not within peacefulness. Or, so this is a question. <laughs> what it struck in me is... Um, you know, there was someone who recently left the community who disrobed, and something that I heard him say was that, you know, I just am not as happy as I was outside of robes. And it has brought up this contemplation of happiness and what the kind of general pursuit of happiness is, and kind of maybe the more Dhamma perspective of we're not actually seeking for happiness. Or So that's what kind of struck me about mm -hmm. that statement of peace, 
Uh, and happiness isn't included in there. So I just wonder if you say something about that. Uh, certainly. Well, it, it's uh, I mean, the way that uh, Cha and, and many of the, the forest Ajahn speak, it's not in sort of a um, categorically precise language. And so I would say that um, uh, there's essentially there's two kinds of happiness. There's the worldly happiness, the Lokia happiness. And that my my reading of it here is that that without happiness or suffering, it's without that kind of worldly happiness, the happiness of, of getting what you want or the suffering of not getting what you want. Um, that, that the other kind of happiness uh, is, uh, uh, which again is in a number of Dhamma talks of Lumpur Chah, particularly also Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about quite, uh, quite clearly and, and very uh, thoroughly that the worldly kind of happiness isn't really a, isn't really happiness because it's so dependent, so fragile. But the the uh, uh, the, say the transcendent kind of happiness, the happiness of, of the free mind, uh, is of a whole different order. So it, it, you can use the word happiness to describe it, but it's not the same as the 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 more superficial happiness of getting what you uh, getting what you want, which you could use a term like gratification or or pleasure. Um, so that the happiness uh, of the free mind is also that um, uh, you know Ajahn Chah would also talk about the happiness of the Buddha. I think in the Buddha comes to Sussex, and he talks about the the mind free of of grasping, free of clinging. You know, this is the happiness of the Buddha. And I think they actually finished the interview on that. Ta-da, this is this is the happiness of the Buddha. So that would be. The 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 uh, a much more profound and uh, I would say and, uh, and and subtle but sort of comprehensive kind of, of happiness, a sense of rightness and, and ease. So the English word happiness can can refer to that whole spectrum, um, and just as suffering can be something very coarse and something very very refined. So that uh, there's two kinds of happiness. So in a, so another way of characterizing it is is to say the 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 uh, the transcendent kind of happiness, or the 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 um, uh, non-worldly, the uh, um, the lokutara kind of happiness, is the happiness of not wanting anything, not the, there being nothing missing. That sense of fullness of being, fullness of heart. So there's there's nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. Uh, so it's not a, a just it's not like an emotional flatness, but it. Um, but it, it's uh, it's free of that kind of of the the sukha vedana of uh, that kind of I got what I wanted kind of uh, a very worldly sort of happiness. So that's how I would read it. But it's frequently um, uh, in Arjun Chah's teaching, um, he often will say, "You know, what we we're chasing after happiness, but we don't really know what we're we're looking for. That uh, we we want happiness, but we." Uh, uh, and so it's often that worldly kind of happiness that he's talking about when he's referring to that. At, uh, so we, we we want happiness, but we keep, we keep creating the causes for suffering. Why exactly? Why that person who left the community felt they didn't have the same kind of happiness? Uh, I, I couldn't speak for that, but that's their own experience. But that's that's how I would. Um, uh, I would say it's, there's, a, there's a, a, a much more profound quality of contentment and, and, and joy and, and ease that's 
uh, you know, like Lumpucha used that phrase, the happiness of the Buddha. And also why usually the Buddha images have got a, a slight smile on their face. Yeah. <laughs> yes? I thought Ajahn Mahabhuva said the living to mind is the last of delusion. Uh, there's a whole Dhamma talk called The Radiant Mind is Unawareness of His. Yeah, so that, um, because uh, I would say that the, again, it's not a sort of categorical <laughs> philosophical analysis, but rather it, that if you read that Dhamma talk, it's a lot to do with the mind attaching to that quality of radiance or brightness or thinking that is, uh, that is goodness itself. And that the, the, the mind that is, uh, say, attaching to, to brightness or radiance, it can still be that there's, uh, that's in the realm of the object. It's this, this quality, it's out there, and that it's this, this beautiful, wonderful thing out there. And in that moment, the mind has left its, its root in the quality of knowing because the, what's being known is, uh, is so bright, so beautiful, so spacious, and so on. So that's how I read it. We, and, and I was, uh, I included the whole of that Dhamma talk in that chapter um, uh, in the island, the, um, the, the uh, knowing radiance uh, and knowing emptiness and the radiant mind. I included the whole of Ajahn, Ajahn Mahabur's Dhamma talk in that too. Um, and it also uh, you put it next to a statement of, of uh, Ajahn Man where he's talking about the, you know, the, the 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 wholesomeness or the the, the kind of uh, noble quality of that radiant mind, and then I put Ajahn Mahabur's talk right next to it, <laughs> so that it's also to indicate that sometimes the teachers can seem to contradict each other, but it's it's important not just to read things at a surface level, uh, but to, to look, uh, read between the lines or to say see what, what's being talked about there. So, so as long as the mind is in that sort of subject, there's a subject-object duality, or I'm experiencing that radiance, or that, oh, my mind, you know, that this is a, a, a beautiful quality of my mind, then there's, there can still be a, a, a subtle as a, an experiencer and an experience, the subject-object division. And the, in a way, the mind has left its ground of knowing, and it's, it's uh, uh, focused on that, that wholesome, beautiful object that, that that's there, and so it's, it's um, even that needs to be to be let go of, and that the, um, <coughs> the uh, I think in the, I think you were asking the question about being one with everything and those kind of oneness things. If you look at that 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 sutta, the the root of all things, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, I did. yeah. So again, it's like let go, let go, let go. Whatever it is, it's let go of nibbana, let go of of, uh, of oneness, let go of everything and anything, anything the mind is attaching to. You know, it's it's it, again, it's kind of attaching to its creations around that, and so that um, it's talking about a very profound quality of of non-identification, non-grasping. And then the effect of that can be you know, brightness and purity and spaciousness, but rather than, uh, but if the mind is, is fully awake, fully clear, then it's not turning that into an object. It's like a, an effect of a subjectless, objectless awareness. So that the mind isn't, isn't making it into a separate thing, that there's an agent, a, 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 
uh, a, a knower that's knowing that that thing. So it's a, you know, it's a subtle kind of attachment. And from that sutta, I realized that the last time we talked about a pumpkin, do you remember? Pumpkins, yes. yes yeah, I think the the um, plane of consciousness connected with false jhana mm-hmm. called a great fruit. I wonder that is the pumpkin. Great fruit, <laughs> Mahapala. <laughs> well, that was also that uh, just um, the your name's Naz, right? Yeah. The question Naz was asking about rejecting the senses. That um, that there's this particular Brahma world. That if you've developed meditation in a in a very refined way, but it's based upon rejection of sense experience, then according to Buddhist cosmology, then that conditions birth in what's called the Asanya Sata Brahma realm. So it's a uh, so it's one of the highest Brahma realms. It's the highest one before the the Sudavasa, where the uh, where non-returners. Uh, are born and realize uh, enlightenment, so it's like I think about twenty second Brahma realm. It's kind of way up in the upper echelons, but uh, a being who has developed meditation in a very refined way, but based on rejection of the sense world, uh, then they are born into this Brahma realm and they're totally unconscious for the whole lifetime. Like their their life is like twenty thousand eons long, and it would be blissful, but they're totally unconscious. From the beginning of the lifetime to the end of the lifetime, they miss the whole thing. So that's like a—I I, felt—that's a very skillful way of symbolizing the negative effects of of rejection of the sense world, and that—and uh, you know, it's a it's a sort of mythological, you know, cosmological uh, way of describing it. But I thought that yeah, that, that that's a, that's a good fit. Yeah, you create incredibly good karma. The mind is really wholesome, but because of this. One little, one one uh, one misplaced piece, then the, you you can't you can't appreciate the mind can't appreciate any of those wholesome results because it's completely unconscious, it's because it's rejected the experiential process. So uh, it's not a big problem for most people, <laughs> but. <laughs> But uh, I feel it's, in terms of a message and in terms of that openness to the, um, or the, the, the way of practicing Dhamma is not rejecting the sense world but attuning to the sense world and learning to the, relate to the sense world with, with skillfulness and I mean particularly being guided by the, the sense of what's wholesome, what's unwholesome and, and so forth, then that that really is the the middle way, and that uh, if your practice is based on on trying to neutralize the sense world or neutralize your emotions and ne- neutralize the mind to nullify the mind, um, it can be quiet, it can be peaceful, but it's not it's not genuinely liberating. And I think that that's that kind of story of the the Asanya Sutta Brahma Ram is like oh, <laughs> kind of karmic twist of okay, you you're really good at the meditation. And, and so that you had there was this very pleasant result from it, but you you totally missed it altogether because you of that the um, that element of of rejection and the the bhavatana. So uh, seven o'clock has come around once again. So let's draw it to a close there for today. <laughs>